Chapter Two of King and Parliament by George Henry Wakeling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Reign of James I, sixteen o three to sixteen twenty five. James Stuart, the successor of Elizabeth on the English throne, was the son of the famous Mary Queen of Scots. He had been king in Scotland almost from his birth. On his accession to the crown of the Triple Kingdom, henceforth called Great Britain and Ireland, he was thirty-seven years old. His position in Scotland had been one of great difficulty, largely owing to the Presbyterian clergy whose constant officious interference with him had grafted in his mind a firm belief in the merits of an Episcopal church dependent upon the crown. James was acute in his own limited way, learned and good-humoured, but his character was fatally marred by conceit, obstinacy, and indecision. His uncouth manners and ungainly person rendered absurd his claim to be considered a supernaturally gifted king, the British Solomon as he loved to be called. An honest belief in his own abilities and good intentions is always a source of weakness to a man who has little power of work and less appreciation of difficulties. James was and remained without a policy, though a policy was imperatively necessary for one who had to deal with the two great questions which Elizabeth had left unsolved, the question of sovereignty of the state and the question of toleration in the church. The first ten years of his reign are marked by constant little failures, which are hardly retrieved by the absence of any great mistakes. The king failed to keep in touch with his first parliament, which lasted from 1604 to 1610, as completely as he showed himself unable to solve the increasing religious difficulties caused by the rise of the Puritans. In Ireland and Scotland, attempts at a statesmanlike policy were thwarted by the royal obstinacy. But in foreign matters, where in after days James was apt to flounder more than in domestic, he was kept from serious harm by the wisdom of his first minister, Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury. The attitude of the Parliament toward the King was from the beginning ominous of troubles to come. The Commons stated in the form of Apology, 1604, that their privileges were their right, not derived, as James thought, from the royal grace. This strong language was occasioned by his attack upon the right of the lower house to decide disputed elections. Nor did the leader spare hints that the dangers of Elizabeth's reign had kept the parliamentary demands more moderate than they were likely to be in future. The king merely replied that they should use their liberty with more modesty. The complete union of England with Scotland was one of James's dearest projects, but the English were jealous of Scots, and the matter was finally dropped because there was no agreement as to how it should be managed. Parliament wished to have a share in effecting it by legally naturalizing Scotchmen. This, the king thought, was accomplished by the mere fact of his accession. An appeal to the judges produced the decision that a child born in Scotland since 1603 was not an alien, and further than this the king who had the best intentions in the matter, was unable to go. In religion, which was likely to prove the greatest crux of all, 
there were three parties those orthodox anglicans who conformed to the prayer book and the church system of elizabeth the obstinate few who remained true to roman catholicism and the puritans who had been persecuted by elizabeth but hoped for better times under the new regime the roman catholics were menaced by many laws passed in the late reign which made the exercise of their religion high treason they were also liable to fines for not attending their parish churches the former are called the penal laws the later recusancy fines james did not share the bitter feeling which had prompted these laws and would fain have put an end to all religious quarrels a noble aim but not a practical one in an age when the popes still looked upon england as probably reclaimable to the dominion of the roman see parliament spoke the voice of the majority of englishmen when it demanded the enforcement of these cruel laws their attitude was strengthened by the wild attempt of some fanatical papists to sweep away king and commons alike by the horrible gunpowder treason in sixteen o five these eager spirits their chiefs were catesby winter fox and digsby formed the gunpowder plot the houses of parliament were to be blown up during a sitting at which the king and the prince of wales were present by means of gunpowder placed in the cellars beneath it was discovered through a letter in which one of the conspirators endeavoured to hint to his friend the danger of attending parliament on november fifth after the execution of guy fox and others persecution fell more stringently on the catholics for the nation suspected that they had all been implicated in the plot and wished to exterminate the whole sect meantime the puritans were far from satisfied in the millinery petition presented to the king very shortly after his arrival in england sixteen o three they had asked for some alterations in the ceremonies to which all ministers had to conform james arranged a conference between bishops and puritan divines at hampton court but there were great difficulties in the way of making the church wide enough to contain these men who wished to modify the thirty-nine articles and to grant all presbyters a share in the episcopal power the high churchmen opposed all such changes james himself had a wholesome dread of the introduction of the scottish system the only result of the conference was that some canons were drawn up in sixteen o four binding clergy and laity still more strictly to the prayer book for the time the parliamentary protests against this attitude of church and crown were in vain but when james showed a disposition to side strongly with church against state in matters of law and proposed to settle the vexed question of the jurisdiction of church courts by hearing cases himself he was led into a serious quarrel with chief justice cook the lawyer plainly told him that the royal power was official rather than personal and that the law was above it such a doctrine was anything but agreeable to one who held with divine hereditary right taxation was another point on which james was soon at issue with his subjects the king's income was not sufficient for the needs of government as well as those of an extravagant court whose officials made money at the nation's expense parliament was not liberal to a king with whom they so seldom agreed and james relying on precedents in the late reign took upon himself to increase the import duties without consulting parliament such impositions had been made illegal in edward the third's reign 
but the judges decided in the case of Bate, 1606, that the king could increase or vary such taxes by his prerogative or royal power alone. This was the first of a long series of cases during the century in which the king appealed to the bench for a confirmation of his rights. James's first parliament closed its seven years' duration with a quarrel over another financial difficulty. The great contract was a scheme by which the crown should renounce the antiquated feudal payments due from land in return for a fixed annual sum. This finally failed, for the commons required, as a preliminary, satisfaction about impositions and church courts. It was of little use for men like Bacon to hope that King and Parliament would work together for reform and progress. Each was in fact beginning to claim for itself a discretionary power to act somewhat beyond the existing law. The Tudor plan of doing what was necessary was losing credit in the face of the further question of what was right, and it is certain that a man like James put a great strain on the idea that kings govern because they know best. Meanwhile, Ireland had its own set of difficulties and problems. The Irish Rebellion of 1598 had been pitilessly crushed, and in 1604 Sir A. Chichester undertook the government of Ireland. There were two chief difficulties, land and religion. The native Irish looked on Protestantism as a foreign creed forced on them against their will. The Lord Deputy tried conciliatory measures and hoped to educate the Irish in the change of faith. But the Irish Parliament of 1613 proved as intractable as the English, and James foolishly recalled Chichester, of whose moderate policy he had not approved. The agrarian difficulty which Chichester had proposed to solve by abolishing the ancient Irish custom, by which the whole tribe held the tribal lands in common tenure, and making the natives free tenants, led to a wholesale eviction of the latter, and the colonization of Ulster by English and Scotch settlers. On the continent, the government had inherited from Elizabeth a policy of war with Spain, but as Spain was no longer dangerous, James and Cecil wisely made peace in 1604. There was, however, a feeling in England that something should be done for the Netherlands, that is, the countries we now call Belgium and Holland. The northern or Dutch provinces had recently thrown off the yoke of Spain, while the southern or Belgian had by cruel persecutions been kept back in their servitude. James was in fact induced in 1609 to guarantee on behalf of the northern provinces a treaty by which they obtained a twelve years' truce from Philip III, but he refused to be dragged into a war against Spain in their interest. He also allied himself with Henry IV of France and with the Protestant princes in Germany, marrying his daughter Elizabeth to the Protestant elector Frederick of the Palatinate. Such was the policy of Cecil, who died in 1612. With his death, following on that of Henry IV, and of James's hopeful son, Prince Henry, the chances of a successful foreign policy came to an end. From 1612 to 1619, James fell from bad to worse. Finding that Parliament could not be moulded to his will, he came to rely on favourites who moulded him to theirs. He opened an intrigue with Spain and became a tool in the hands of its quick-witted ambassador, Sarmiento, Count of Gondomar. 
he adopted Bacon's fatal theory that the judges should be lions under the throne, that is, the king's tools, and dismissed the chief justice who objected to be made the exponent of this experiment in natural history. He trampled on the Scottish church, quarreled with the Dutch, and so lost touch with his people that when a national question arose in the last period of his reign he was unable to avoid disaster. A Scotchman named Robert Carr, upon whom James lavished titles and favours, was now his chief adviser. He had been made Viscount Rochester and shortly became Earl of Somerset. The Spanish party at court and the Spanish ambassador Sarmiento used this favourite to further their policy. The alliance with France had failed after the three deaths before mentioned, and the efforts of Spain were now directed to replace it by a closer friendship with the court of Madrid. The Spaniards had a delusion that Protestantism was merely an English fad which might be removed with patience and care. James's own idea was expressed in the words Beati Pacifici. He loved to dream of himself as the peacemaking arbiter of a docile Europe but he failed to see that Spain liked peace for other reasons, that she did not want England to help the Dutch, and was only trying to win toleration for the Catholics, fondly dreaming of the complete conversion of England to crown her castle in the air. The financial needs of the government caused a parliament to be summoned in 1614, but the new assembly refused to supply the royal needs unless it could obtain some satisfaction about impositions, which had been largely increased since the case of Bate. The Spanish party suggested that a marriage of Prince Charles, now heir to the English throne, with the wealthy Infanta Maria, daughter of Philip III, would settle James's debts, and the king, relying on the kindly feelings of the Spanish ambassador, dissolved Parliament after two months. Digby, afterwards Earl of Bristol, was entrusted with negotiations of a vague character for the Spanish match. He was able and honest, too honest to be on a level with the Spanish diplomatists. The obstinacy and consequent dissolution of Parliament soon caused another return to arbitrary taxation by royal mandate. This took the form of a benevolence or free gift, but the gift was in truth so little free that a man named Oliver St. John was prosecuted in the Star Chamber for refusing to contribute. This court the king's favorite engine, was extremely powerful because exempt from the ordinary rules of judicial procedure. It had been very effectual in suppressing disorder in Tudor times, and was now composed of the members of the Privy Council, who were thus able to punish those who resisted the royal authority. It was practically the ministry sitting as unfettered judge of its own acts. It was not long before the Crown gained a further ally in the subservient bench. Chief Justice Cook had an exaggerated opinion of the importance of the lawyers, but his belief in the law was a useful weapon against a king who claimed to be irresponsible. He disagreed with Bacon's idea and considered that the judges should be arbiters in the state, a view which would only suit James so long as they arbitrated in his favor. When, therefore, Cook asserted his duty as a judge to act, not on the king's orders, but as the law dictated, he was dismissed, 1616. Bacon became chancellor soon after this, and the Stuarts had little further trouble from independent judges. 
the dutch were driving james further in the direction of a spanish alliance by disputing the english monopoly of whale fishing and excluding them from trade with the spice islands in the east indies but the arrogance of somerset was unbearable and his anti-spanish opponents were already undermining his monopoly of the king's favour by teaching a handsome clever youth named villiers to attract the king's notice at this moment the spanish conditions of marriage were announced and as they included a suspension of the penal laws and a catholic education for the future heir to the throne the hopes of the opposite party revived their triumph appeared even more sure after a scandalous lawsuit in which somerset and his wife were pronounced guilty of poisoning a courtier named overbury who had known some damaging facts about the divorce of lady somerset from her first husband james however was not easily diverted from his hankering after spain he feared the nation's feeling might develop into a war cry and apparently thought he could allay their prejudices by selling their laws and opinions the enemies of spain had now found a ready weapon in the old elizabethan sea captain sir walter raleigh he had been in prison for twelve years for supposed complicity in a plot against the king but he was still eager to sail to the orinoco and discover a mine of gold of which he had heard in former voyages james allowed him to go though the spaniards cried out against the scheme as an infringement of the unlimited rights which they claimed in the west indies raleigh though warned not to trespass on these rights started with no intention of keeping so impossible a promise after an unsuccessful voyage in which his men fought with spanish settlers and burnt san tome he returned to find the king pledged to hand him over to spain the disgrace was avoided but raleigh was sacrificed to spanish hatred and executed in sixteen eighteen on the old charge of treason which had kept him so many years in the tower the new favourite george villiers had now become the king's trusted adviser as duke of buckingham but did not at once throw in his lot with the spanish party this and the fact that the infanta and her dowry could not be obtained without complete toleration of the roman catholics caused a suspension of the marriage scheme but the king though he ceased for the time to bargain for the sale of the conscience of england showed but scant respect for that of scotland he called an assembly at perth in sixteen eighteen which was forced to adopt five articles prescribing rites and ceremonies to which the scottish clergy and people strongly objected it is to be noticed however that james never went so far as his less prudent son and made no attempt to enforce uniformity of worship in his two kingdoms meanwhile the european horizon grew dark with the great shadow of the thirty years war this struggle began in bohemia in the year sixteen eighteen and aroused the national feeling in a way that made it more than ever necessary that there should be a leader with clear aims and the confidence of his people but the last period of the reign from sixteen eighteen to sixteen twenty five presents a pitiable spectacle a helpless king drifting aimlessly amid a sea of conflicting interests without a policy which he dared to explain to the nation was content to seek for guidance from the bitterest enemy of the nation spain the struggles which had begun during the last century between protestants and catholics in germany had been compromised but not settled there were german princes pledged to each side 
and each prince claimed to regulate the religion of his subjects. But latitude and longitude cannot really determine opinion, and if they could, it would be hard to settle what was to be done when a ruler held sway over many lands of varying opinion. This was the difficulty which had now occurred. The emperor Matthias, when dealing with his Bohemian subjects, was obliged to allow both religions. The claims of Protestants to build churches on Catholic church lands led to the destruction of one of their places of worship, and the Protestants at once rebelled. The rest of Germany was composed of states interested in one side or the other, but before much could happen, the emperor died, and the Bohemians took the opportunity of refusing to accept his successor, the bigoted Ferdinand II. In August of 1619 they elected James's son-in-law, Frederick of the Palatinate, as their king. James believed in his family far more than in his country, and was anxious to prevent the loss of his son-in-law's domain on the Rhine, which would probably follow should Ferdinand be successful in Bohemia. But he believed even more in himself, and so he began to study the question of Bohemian rights, while the time for action slipped away. James had two choices. He might mediate or he might fight. For the latter alternative he had a thorough dislike, and he was certainly wise in not wishing to embroil England in continental quarrels for the sake of a man like Frederick. This prince was proud and incapable, and went to Prague only to see his cause overthrown by the imperial forces in October of 1620. But if James would mediate, he had a fair chance. Spain, though connected by her royal family and religion with the Emperor Ferdinand, was not at all eager to fight for the Catholic cause, as she was shortly expecting a renewal of her war with the Dutch. The Protestant princes were not anxious to see their religion trampled on, and the Palatinate transferred from Frederick to the Duke of Bavaria, which was the Emperor's intention. France, too, was bound to be jealous of Austro-Spanish success. Thus there was an opportunity both to defend the Palatinate in force and to mediate in the matter of Bohemia. While James was studying the question, the Palatinate was seized. Thus the clever Gondomar had gained his object. James had relied on the high opinion he always held of Spanish kindness, and Buckingham had at last thrown in his lot with Spain. When the affairs of the nation had got quite beyond their control, the Stuarts generally summoned a parliament, and in 1621 James pursued this course. Here was a good opportunity to put himself at the head of his people. He spoke of money, which he needed to enable him to mediate sword in hand, but as he did not explain his intentions further, no money was voted. The truth was, he had no plans to explain. Parliament attacked the trade monopolies, which were sold to courtiers, demanded the execution of the penal laws on the papists, and begged the king to fight Spain and marry his son to a Protestant. While the commons were showing the intensity of their feeling by cruelly punishing a Roman Catholic named Floyd for expressing pleasure at the defeat of Frederick, James and Buckingham were hoping to get back the Palatinate by the old delusion of the Spanish marriage. The king first promised Gondomar not to allow Parliament to offend the religious feeling of Spain, and then promised the houses not to conclude any treaties which would be disadvantageous to the religion of England. When the commons refused to leave the matter to the care of the king and the Spanish ambassador, they were told not to meddle with mysteries of state. 
this with a further declaration that their power to discuss national interests was derived from the royal grace caused them to protest that their liberties were their birthright the protest was torn from the journals by the angry monarch's own hand and the third parliament of king james was dissolved meanwhile the war in germany went on the protestant cause was in the hands of a reckless soldier of fortune named mansfield who was alienating friends by plundering and slaying the peasants of the rhine districts the protestant union gave up the struggle and the saving of the elector's cause was rendered hopeless when heidelberg his capital fell in september of sixteen twenty two the intervention of spain on which james had relied was as far off as ever and the spaniards having now secured their object were inclined to finish the negotiations by pleading the impossibility of obtaining the pope's assent to the marriage at home james was without a single wise counsellor digby was in spain trying to construct a policy out of spanish politeness and his master's fears bacon the lord chancellor had fallen a victim to his own carelessness in accepting presents which can only have been meant as bribes and was in disgrace buckingham and the prince over whose weak character the quick and reckless favourite had complete influence now determined to go to spain and arrange the marriage themselves james was induced to assent to this absurd scheme but his council preferred to send an ultimatum to spain asking whether philip would fight the emperor to force the restitution of the palatinate this brought a deceptive reply but it showed the spaniards that their game was nearly played out the situation when the travellers reached madrid was remarkable the king philip the fourth and his ministers as well as the infanta herself were all in reality averse to the match james never meant to promise the repeal of the penal laws and the spaniards never meant to take less charles imagined that he was in love as soon as he saw the princess while buckingham offended all the spaniards he could offend in the short time given him the pope refused to be made the cause of a rupture of which the spaniards meant him to bear the blame and philip the fourth found it impossible to propose any terms which charles was not foolish enough to accept even after bargaining to obtain a repeal of the penal laws in three years the prince still failed to carry off the prize and left madrid in a fit of ill-temper when he was home again his pride outweighed his affections and he called for vengeance on the spaniards he was still pledged to the marriage but it was now england's turn to raise the terms and philip was asked to arm against his family and his religion to secure a restitution of the palatinate the dilemma was in fact so hopeless that another parliament was summoned for february sixteen twenty four buckingham and charles were able to pose as national heroes who had burst the chains riveted by spain to fetter english freedom the treaties were dissolved and money voted but the chance of acting with parliament speedily vanished buckingham now became anxious for an alliance with france the old foe of spain and wished to secure the hand of a french princess for charles parliament was more than ever determined to keep to the penal laws and in foreign affairs to renew the work of elizabeth and smite spain by sea and land the king of england was thinking only of the palatinate and was as willing to rely on french charity as on spanish but hated all idea of a religious war 
the french were delighted to see spain injured but cared nothing for the palatinate since they were only bent on recovering the valteline the alpine valley by which the spaniards had an access to germany from the mediterranean nor was france sufficiently in need of the english alliance to waive her claim for toleration of roman catholics in england the result of this confusion was soon apparent james having given a clear promise to parliament not to repeal the penal laws thought he could still write a secret engagement with france by which the roman catholics were promised toleration the marauder mansfield was hired to lead english troops to recover the palatinate but when they crossed the sea they were left to die in hundreds of cold and hunger on the dutch frontiers the marriage treaty with france however was duly signed and the french king was promised assistance against his rebellious protestant subjects while buckingham who still retained the unmerited confidence of the nation one on his return from spain was thus unwittingly concocting a series of national disgraces the king died on march twenty seventh sixteen twenty five he was only in his sixtieth year but his unhealthy habits and hard drinking had made him old and decrepit long before his time End of chapter two